of being with him and how, how incredible that is. I often wonder, so last night my, my family and I decided to, to go drive a long ways just to eat Chick-fil-A for dinner. And uh, uh, I, I was talking I was talking with Stephanie Davidson on the way there, and she's like, boy, it's a long way for fast food. And in my mind, I'm thinking, no, it's the mecca of fast food. So, and so I'm driving, and, and I, I, always, I always think, maybe you guys think a lot when you, when you drive. I certainly do. Are you guys like me? If the speed limit is 70, no. do you go 74 or 69? Yeah, right. No one goes 69 and 70. Uh, we are people who, when given a law to obey, we look for loopholes or ways uh, to gray the area just enough to make it uncertain if what I actually did was wrong. I, I actually believe that, that the very first questioning of God's goodness from the Garden of Eden, I actually think that that is part of the heartbeat of our very lives. You know, that, that first question that, that Satan asks Eve, did God actually say I think that reigns in our hearts and minds all the time, actually. All of human history reflects us of doubting God's goodness and doubting his word and, and looking for loopholes to justify doing what we want. That was true of Israel uh, just as much as it's true of us. Uh, but before Christ came, we needed a guardian because of our sin. Uh, the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai was the guardian given to Israel until Christ came. At least that's what the book of Galatians says. This guardian, this law, reflects the heart of God. It reflects his holiness. And since scripture, all scripture, is useful and helpful for our gospel transformation, the question for us today is, will we be transformed to follow God more diligently or will we hear God's word and reject how it reflects Christ? We started looking last week uh, at God's covenant with Israel through Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, God calls them to join him in covenant relationship where Israel will be the treasured possession of God. They will receive God's blessing by being under God's rule. And we began at, by looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're a summary of the rules, which, which is what we're looking at today. Uh, we're in the, the second part of Exodus, right? There was, the, there was the Exodus, there was the salvation, and then now God is giving a covenant with them. And then the rest of the book of Exodus is God's presence with them. And so we're in the midst of God joining in covenant relationship with Israel. And uh, I forgot it last week, but we do have a verse of the series that's going to help us understand all the Exodus is doing. It is inside your bulletin, actually, kind of on the inside front cover. It's Exodus, uh, it's actually Exodus 33, 14, right? Let's say that together. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what we want to key in on and see how, how that reality is making its way through the book of Exodus. Let me pray for our time in God's word this morning. Lord, we pray that we would be not only hearers of your word this morning, that we would be hearers and doers of your word. That 
from your word, it, it would take shape and, and affect our lives in a way that we would not sit back and think, boy, that's interesting, but that it would help us to respond in worship uh, through, through our lips and through our lives that, that we would live more faithful to you because of your word. So God, use the book of Exodus to do that in our hearts this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I like to give a, a roadmap of where we're going, especially since we are handling a number of different chapters this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to the book of Exodus. We are finishing chapter 20, but we are going to make it all the way through Exodus 24. I know you guys are like, what? Uh, it'll be okay. We'll get through it, and it's going to be glorious. And here's the roadmap of where we're going, okay? It's actually the same roadmap we had last week because this has been a two-part sermon. Uh, and, and here's what it is. Eagerly prepare for our homecoming to glory by living out our covenant with God in Christ. We need to eagerly prepare for our own homecoming to glory by living out our covenant with God in Christ. And so we're going to kind of see how, how joining in covenant with God um, affects how we worship. It affects our relationships. And then we're going to see this covenant confirmed, and it's going to be incredible. So uh, let me encourage you to, to glance at Exodus 20. We're going to actually start in verse 22, okay? And we're going to go in this section, this worship and relationships uh, is going to go all the way through the first half of chapter 22. Uh, everything from last week up through Exodus 24 is called the Book of the Covenant. Okay, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at what is this Book of the Covenant. It began with the Ten Commandments, and now it continues with all the rules that are expansions of the Ten Commandments. And so while we're breaking it up into two different chunks, everything from Exodus 19 through Exodus 24 is a single unit. Now, Israel could not rightly say, I'm going to ignore the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to obey the laws about blood. No, they couldn't do that. They also couldn't say, I think I'm obligated to this part, but I'm not obligated to these other parts. No, no, the law is a single unit, and it's all accepted under this covenant with God. Uh, Paul understood it this way. When he wrote the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, he says this, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. And so, so we, uh, we couldn't pick or choose one section over the other. The law is a unit, as a whole, though, though we've been looking at it in two parts. And what are the rules that God gave to Israel to live in his blessing? Uh, it's bookended on both ends, uh, in, in verse 22 of, of chapter 20, and all the way in chapter uh, 23, it's bookended with the worship of God. Uh, it ends with worship, talking about the rules for involving the Sabbath and, and festivals and serving God only in the land of Canaan. And, and then it also begins with worship, all these rules about altars. So, so let me read this section for us, beginning in verse 22. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. 
You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it, on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you yield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps up to my altar, uh, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And so the big point is this. God is number one, and he cares about how he is worshipped. The tools that are, uh, are, that are not to be used on his altar is a big deal. Uh, things that might sound good, th- th- images, carvings out of gold and silver, which are these precious metals that, are, that might be used to say, well, this is how I remember God. This is how I think of God. I want to picture these glorious things. God doesn't want it. It would deter us, actually, from worshiping Yahweh, the living God who rescued Israel from slavery. And so he's saying that no idol, no, no matter how lovely in, a, in appearance or how expensive it is, could be worshipped, even if we claim that they remind us of God. That'd still be idolatry. God is first, and, and we're to be careful with what he says. And what we see, interesting, is that even worshipping God had potential ways of profaning that worship. He says, look, if you try to worship me and you, and you built the altar with these kinds of tools, I don't want it. Or if you built up the altar and you, you have to take up steps because, you know, they didn't wear undergarments in those days. And, and so uh, if your nakedness is on it, you, you profane the worship. And so even as they want to worship God, uh, there's the potential of them making it profaned or sacrilegious instead of holy and acceptable to God. And what these laws do is is they point us to a need of a better sacrifice and and a better type of priest who would not profane the worship of God at all. And what's so interesting is that Jesus is that better sacrifice and that better priest. Here's what it says of Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. And so what we see is that we actually, because of Jesus, don't need to worry about, oh no, what if I come to church on Sunday and I'm singing these words about how better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere, but what if my mind gets distracted elsewhere? What if, what if my mind starts worrying about something else? I wonder, if, is God going to be profaned? Am I going wor- to profane the worship of God? But what we have actually is confidence that our gathering and worship of God when we worship in spirit and in truth Uh, as Jesus commands uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that our worship is actually pleasing to God. It's not profane. It's not sacrilegious. It is actually glorious to God. In Jesus, we have God honoring worship every time we gather together. It's interesting to see that 
that when people come into covenant with God, the response that happens is the worship of God. Worship is a basic response to God. And so in that time, altars were needed for sacrifices, which were needed to worship God. And so now Israel needed to respond fully to him in worship. Uh, remember, that they are uh, former slaves that have come out of Egypt and all of those religious practices. And so what God didn't want are these religious practices that were just borrowed from other pagan concepts of worship and sacrifice to idols. And so you can actually see how, the, how this section is an expansion on the first two commands, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image. God is holy, and his worship should reflect that. That's why God didn't want them to profane the altar by adjusting its look, because people could take ownership, because, because they finished it with human tools. They could take pride and say, yeah, I did that. No, no, that, that, that's counter to the worship of God. The altar was simple so that no one would mistake identifying it as having some intrinsic value or worth because it's all about God. And so living in covenant relationship with God affects not only our worship of God, but we see that it also affects our relationships with others. God then continues in all these rules about servants, about the vulnerable, about ethical treatment of others, uh, rules about injuries to other people, rules about injuries to and from animals, and, and all sorts of more things. All are there because of their covenant with God. God has saved them, and because they're in covenant relationship with God, that covenant is to be reflected in their human-to-human -human relationships. So some of the highlights in this in these two chapters are this. Uh, there are rules that regulate the treatment of people who might be easily mistreated or exploited. Uh, that's where we get that section of chapter 21 about, of servants and slaves. Uh, Douglas Stewart in, in his uh, New American Commentary says that, that these principles very much can be applied to different work arrangements today. And so when we see laws about servants and slaves in, in Exodus 21, uh, what we need to be careful of is that we should not think of slavery in the United States history as being the same thing. They're actually very much not the same. The, world, uh, uh, the, the word slave occurs more than a thousand times in the Old Testament. And so when you see the word slave, it, it's not automatically a category for employees, but, but this common Hebrew word can mean worker, it can mean employer, uh, employee, it can mean servant or slave. And so all of this is under the protection of Yahweh's covenant. That, that's what we should see. And in the time of Israel, uh, people would enlist in a formal contract that they signed to perform for a period of time, uh, kind of like a military uh, uh, enrollment or enlistment today. And so the language that's used for, for bought and sold is pretty generic for all financial transactions. Right? We, we speak about that in sports world, right? About sports players who've been traded or bought from one team to another. That would fit in the same general category here. Western hemisphere slavery uh, involved stealing of people of a different race from their homelands, transporting them in chains to a new land, selling them to an owner who possessed them for life and basically had no restrictions. 
Well, that practice was practiced elsewhere in the ancient world, but the big deal here is that it was not to be allowed in Israel. So if you look at verse 16 of chapter 21, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There's also multiple categories for servants and slaves, from day laborers that we we read about even in in the New Testament, to these six-year laborers, uh, to those whose lives were spared from war and allowed to work in Israel indefinitely. Look at Exodus 21, verses 2 and 3. It says this, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And so Israel's servant laws are are best understood from their own history of slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians made Israelite slaves on the basis of their ethnicity, forced them to be slaves for life, didn't compensate them properly, and worked them unbearably hard. Well, against that experience, The Bible's laws protect all sorts of workers, guaranteeing them the right to gain their freedom after a period of time. At least that's what Exodus 21, 1-4 is saying. Uh, Biblical law also gave immediate freedom to those who had been physically abused. Look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 21. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So the evil Egyptian treatment that Israel endured was not to be continued in Israel. God was making clear that treating those in your debt ethically reflects God who rescued Israel from slavery. So what we actually see is human rights matter even in the Old Testament law. Now there's that section in in chapter 21. It's probably one of the most popular parts of the Old Testament law. People quote it out of context, of course, right? The eye for an eye section. But what's interesting is that when we read the context of it, it, it's not actually describing vengeance, but it's actually describing mercy and value of life. Look at the context with me uh, in beginning in verse 22. It's all about the ethical treatment of people in lots of different situations with parents and slaves and spouses and children and how they are to be valued as people, not as property, not as expendable goods. And so eye for an eye comes in the context of valuing human life, especially in a pregnant woman if she is harmed and if her child is also harmed. It's actually meant to be for the protection of the vulnerable, to be treated with dignity and value and and not as trash. So so look at verse 26 or 22 with me. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. And so really what we see is, is Exodus 21 is, is summarizing the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. What does it look like for God to be first and for our human relationships to flurry? And I think we need to pause. And as we read these types of things, and we, we see how that is not always how we live in the world today, we need to see the call from God's word that we are to value people as the same value that we have for ourselves. How do we value people around us? If the laws of our land don't prohibit something, do you just feel like it's okay? Well, I'd actually argue that, that as Christians, we are not only governed by the laws of our land, we are actually held to the moral and ethical guidelines of God. We don't have slaves today, but we certainly have relationships where we can devalue below people what God has actually made them to be in his image. So the question for us should be, how can we better reflect the reality that God has rescued us in our treatment of one another? We see as we continue on in Exodus 22, uh, verses 1 to 15, uh, it involves rules about borrowing things from others. And here's the basic principle. A person who causes someone to lose property, either by theft or neglect, owes compensation to the one who suffered the loss. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay. And so what we're doing is we're, we're seeing how God is dealing with lying and stealing and, and coveting what other neighbors have. But it's interesting, it, it does bring up a question that says, what does it look like for us to make restitution in our relationships today? Right, I think Christians can be some of the worst offenders because we do something to, to deeply hurt someone and we just say a quick sorry and we just expect them to, they have to forgive us because they're Christians, right? A, a little sorry that isn't even genuine in the name of Jesus and Christians think that that's enough. It's interesting that Exodus 22 uh, reflects that, that the person who has sinned against the other is responsible for making the relationship right. I think this is part of the motivation that John, when he wrote 1 John, where he says, Dear children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in action and in truth. Property responsibility disputes can be difficult, and so uh, if, if you borrow something from a neighbor and, uh, and, and damage happens to whatever this thing is, uh, this might surprise you or you might find this laughable. I like watching Duck Dynasty. Like, I like it a lot, actually. I feel way braver after I see the dumb things that they do, and I think I could, I could do that stuff. And there's this one episode where someone in the family borrows, like, this wood chipper or something, and, and one of these other members of the family is like, hey, I need that back. And, and the guy's like, well, it was stolen out of my shed that had a giant hole in it and the, and the doors weren't even on there anymore. And the guy's like, well, you need to buy me a new one. He's like, well, it was stolen. Sorry, I'm not responsible for that. It's interesting how Exodus 22 actually deals with property disputes. And what we see is this. Situations 
of borrowing or renting something should then be called to return it in the same condition as it was before being borrowed. Or the one is obligated to pay the damages uh, seems to be the standard here in Exodus 22. Saying, well, it must have been stolen isn't a proper defense in God's law. We are to make sure that if we borrow things from people, uh, Exodus 22 says, we're responsible for how we use it and return it. And so what we see is, is because our covenant with God, it affects human-to-human relationships. That's still true today, right? Even though we're not in the Mosaic law, we, we, we are into the new covenant with Christ, and yet we still see that we are responsible for reflecting God in our relationships with one another. And in fact, the way that we do that in our relationships today is actually a way that we prepare to be with God for eternity. And so we should eagerly prepare for our homecoming to glory by living out our covenant with God in Christ. Well, let's look at this second part, really chapter 22, verses 16, all the way through most of chapter 30, or 23, about these relationships and worship, part two. Right, So living in covenant relationship with God affects what we see is it affects romantic relationships. So the, the summary of Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17 is this. If you try to bypass cultural protections for relationships, like marriage, it puts women in a vulnerable place to be used. And so we see this phrase in here, this bride price, and that might sound degrading to our ears today, but it wasn't understood that way in ancient Israel. It was actually a way of trying to honor the value of a woman. I think it's interesting that there's no husband price, which means that every guy marries up. Okay, I'm sorry to tell you this. Every guy marries up. That's just the reality. Um, uh, the bride price forced a man to make a formal arrangement for marriage involving everyone's interests. And so what the law is saying here is that having sexual relations with a woman with or without her permission devalued her and showed disregard for her worth. It also showed that the man viewed marriage as less than a lifelong covenant commitment. You know, we live in a world that's very uh, uh, sexualized. Do our actions regarding sexual relationships do they reflect God or do they reflect the world in how we live? The, the more every area of our lives reflects being saved by God and following his morals, the more we will actually have the blessing of God, the more we will know God's blessing. So what might our sexual actions reflect about how much we submit to God or don't? Maybe you're a Christian who is struggling in this area of your life. Well, don't give up the fight to reflect the goodness of God in your life because our labor to live for God in every area, even sexual relationships, that labor is not in vain. It is worth the struggle. The rest of this section of the end of verse 22, or chapter 22 all the way into chapter 23, we see kind of two things that are, that are important here. There's a, a noticeable change from, from talking about things in the third person, 
like when a man or when a woman, right? Third person, and it changes to second person. You, when you, when you, which, which gives these sections of the laws almost stronger weight of words. Also, two times in this section, there's a reminder that the Israelites were themselves foreigners in Egypt. And so they should remember the painful disadvantage of their former non-citizen status, and therefore they should be careful not to take advantage of others who are in a vulnerable social position. This happens both at the end and the beginning of these sections with a warning that God hears the cries of the oppressed. So in verse 21 of chapter 22, It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's almost like God's getting ready to say later, uh, treat others how you would want to be treated, right? And then in in verse 9 of chapter 23, it says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so what we see is that the vulnerable were to be protected. Israel's calling was to reflect as a nation and as a people God's compassion. Israel was to treat the vulnerable carefully because God is compassionate and he hears the cries of the vulnerable. The motivation for this is because they are saved people by the power of God. They are in covenant with God. God has saved them to himself. And so these laws are all about God being made great in their lives. So Christian, how do you make God's name great in your life? God calls Israel to dedicate part of what we have to him, right? The first harvest, the firstborn, for all for the sake of God's name being great. Have you considered that part of making God's name great is what you sacrifice in his name? Not not meaning go kill a goat, don't burn a cow, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what do we give up in the name of Jesus for the proclamation of the name of Jesus? What do we give so that God's name would be made great? Because it's easy to think that all of our things are to reflect us and for us and for my happiness and for my comfort and for my enjoyment. And yet God says that everything we have is from him. There's nothing that we have that isn't from God. In fact, we are only stewards of everything that we have. And so when we sacrifice for the name of God, it makes his name great. What does it look like in your life for God to get the best things? It's understandable why guarding justice comes not by giving unfair advantage to the wealthy. We, we get that. What's surprising to us is that in Exodus 23, God is also concerned about unfair treatment simply because someone is poor. He says both are wicked, actually. It is wicked to withhold justice for the rich or the poor. And so we see this in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 23. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. 
Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. What we see is that God is the ultimate judge and he does not value wickedness. He doesn't value partiality. And so this section ends then how it began with a focus on remembering God's greatness of his salvation and ends with them worshiping him. And so because you can take Israel out of Egypt, but it's harder to take Egypt out of Israel, they needed reminding of God's provision, of God's presence, and of God's goodness. That's what all these laws about Sabbath and festivals of chapter 23 verses 10 through through 19 are all about. They were reminders of God's goodness and his provision, and they came as, as moments of rest and celebrations. So look with me in verse 10 of chapter 23. He says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest. Think about that. They trusted God enough to take a year off from their very livelihood because they were all farmers. And we look at verse 12 of chapter 23. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Which points us to this reality. Focusing on God, worshiping God, is actually refreshing to our souls. Many of us work five or six days a week, having a weekly gathering where we lay aside our business worries and we focus on our life-giving Savior ought to be refreshing to us, not burdensome. It is taxing to always wonder, where is the next paycheck going to come from? How is this house going to get fixed? How are my kids going to succeed in this or that? But, but turning our eyes away from those worries and focusing on God's sufficient provision is actually refreshing to our souls. You know, two of our core values here at Friendship Baptist Church are passionate worship and joyous living. Well, I think these values are tied to remembering God's promises. Well, we all know the, the Christian that makes God seem like this big, angry dude. But God's saving work and his powerful promises should lead us to worship and to feeling refreshment in God. So Christian, how might you find refreshment in God by focusing on his promises and not stresses at work when we gather together for the worship of God? So Israel had three major festivals revolving around and celebrating God's provision. Uh, a festival for when they were leaving Egypt, that's the festival of unleavened bread, and then they had two other festivals, one when they, they would plant their crops, and then another when they would receive the first harvest. Uh, it was all, these festivals were reminding them of God's great provision. Well, that's what we do when we have our two festivals, when we celebrate Christmas and Easter, especially remembering God's provision to us in Christmas. Because actually, something greater than the Exodus has happened. Uh, the Exodus story of, of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt by the powerful, outstretched hand of God, that's an amazing, incredible historical reality, but we know of a greater Exodus that has happened. That's why Jesus came. 
is that the problem is that we could leave Israel, Israel could leave Egypt, but they were still sinful and needed God's provision. The same thing is true of us. We naturally have rebelled against God and have rejected his rule and his goodness over our lives, deciding that we wanted to, to live as if we were our own gods, our own authority. And God instead says, no, no, I'm not going to let that rebellion last. And so we have, through our sin, incurred death and judgment. But then God, in his kindness and mercy and love and his provision, he sends Jesus down to earth to live a perfect life, never in rebellion against God. Jesus then is the perfect sacrifice to step in our place for our punishment that we deserved. Jesus takes it upon himself. He dies on the cross. The third day he is raised from the dead, showing that he has conquered death and defeated it and promises new life and restoration and the greatest story of salvation ever, better than the Exodus, in him. He says that all who turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus, they will find forgiveness, they will find rest, they will be adopted into God's family, we will have God's presence with us, and that is the greatest picture of God's provision for us. That's why we celebrate Christmas, that's why we celebrate Easter, it's because we remember God's provision for us in Christ. Worship was intended by God to remind us of our restoration and our well-being in God. And so we're to eagerly prepare for our homecoming to glory by living out our covenant with God and Jesus. Let's look at this last part, uh, really verses 20 of Exodus 23 all the way through Exodus 24, where this covenant is confirmed. See, even though Israel had been given the law, It's really interesting. In verses 20 through 32, we see that there is this angel of God that's still needed. Even though they have God's word, the angel of God is still needed to guard them, to lead them in truth, and ultimately to lead them to the promised land, to lead them home. And so obeying him brings blessing, it says in verse 22 of chapter 23. It says this, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And so what we see is that God's rules aren't just good while they're at Mount Sinai, but even in their final destination, the promised land, they're to live under God's rules to enjoy God's blessings. Especially with all these other nations that are around them, serving Yahweh alone was critical for their survival. Look at verses 32 and 33. God warns them about this. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God is saying that Israel needed to trust him and follow him. And then we see Exodus 24, where they conclude with this covenant ceremony. And it's, it's incredible. It's what we read in our scripture reading. And, and three things stand out. It ends with the worship of God again, right? The right response to being in covenant relationship with God is worship. That's what we see in verse, 21, or verse 1 of chapter 24, with the leaders of Israel worshiping from afar, but Moses is with God. And then notice in verse 3 of chapter 24, 
that Moses told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules, right? Remember the Ten Commandments? The word commandment is not found in the passage. Uh, it's the ten words. So Moses tells the, uh, the, the people of Israel all the ten words and all the rules that correspond with it. Okay, everything we've just been looking at. So we see a connection of the ten words and the rules all in the book of the covenant together. And then the third thing we see that's really interesting is that after Israel agreed to everything, it's time to seal the deal through sacrifice. There were 12 pillars, one for each tribe of Israel, meaning that they were all in it together. Okay, it was, it was every single person who was responsible for keeping the covenant with God. Uh, Moses reads the book of the covenant in the hearing of the people. They agree to it. And then Moses does something really bizarre. Did you guys notice that in our scripture reading? He throws blood over all of them. Uh, don't miss that significance. In fact, the only place where in sacrificial worship that anyone is covered in blood is the priest who is doing the ceremony on behalf of Israel. But here, everyone is covered in the blood of the covenant, which means that every Israelite was a covenant partner. Every single Israelite was responsible. Every person was responsible to ensure that the covenant was kept. Therefore, they were sprinkled with blood. And then the most surprising thing happens. After the covenant is made, they're no longer completely separated from God. They are now covered in the blood of the covenant. And look at what verses 9 and through 11 say. They then go into the place and the presence of God. Something they've not been able to do. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, uh, priests, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And then verse 11, it says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the, of the people of Israel. But that, that's important, remember? He said if they go up on the mountain, if they try to break through, they will surely die. Well, what's the difference now? They're covered in the blood of the covenant. For them to be in the presence of God, it requires this blood that has been spilled in the covenant. Being in covenant with God brings the presence of God. So he did not lay hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They celebrated. They had a party in the presence of God. Being in covenant with God brings the presence of God. It brings the blessings of God. It brings access to God. Notice that their presence with God is through spilled blood. Friends, you know where this is going, right? You can, you can see how this is a setup for why Jesus is actually so much greater because the problem is that it didn't last. Even that blood that spilled on them from the covenant, it eventually wore off. They needed more blood to be spilled for them to continually have access to them, to God. But listen to how this drives us to Jesus and his work on the cross. Uh, think of Hebrews 9. Let, let me read it for us. Verses 9 to 15, it says this. 
but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, uh, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Here's what we see. Jesus' blood is a better covering than even the blood of the covenant of the Mosaic covenant that happened here in Exodus 24. Jesus' sacrifice is in, secures for us an eternal redemption, not something that needs to be happening again and again and again. Jesus doesn't need to keep dying on the cross, but actually what do we see that he says on the cross? He says it is finished, which means because of him, because of his sacrifice, we have eternal redemption through Jesus to God, to his presence. We are guaranteed a greater party than them beholding God and eating and drinking. We are promised the marriage supper of the lamb where we will be with God. He will be with his people and we will never be absent from him again. That is the greatness of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That's what's so amazing that his death is so uniquely able to satisfy the wrath of God is because nothing else has. Everything else was temporary. But now that Christ has come, we have full confidence, full access to God. We don't have to be afraid that if we try to approach him, we will die. No, because Christ already did and was raised on the third day so that we are forever redeemed to God. Amen for that great word. Amen for Jesus' work. And so we are called to eagerly prepare for our homecoming to glory by living out our covenant relationship with God in Christ. Because God has saved us, we are to say, okay, that affects how we worship. That affects our human-to-human relationships. God's salvation through Jesus changes our entire existence. Christ's death redeems even the sin under the first covenant, Hebrews 9.15 says. Christ's death even ransoms us. Praise God for that good work. Praise God that he did not leave us uh, with temporary access through the blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away and pay for sin. He instead sent his only son to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Praise God that we have access to him and his presence through the work of Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we are astounded that your covenant in Jesus is so much greater than anything we have ever known. That it eternally secures for us every blessing that you could give. And so God, we pray that because that reality is fixed, it is guaranteed, because we cannot lose it because of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, God, would that, would that affect our lives now? Would that change the way we worship now? Would that change the way we interact with one another now? That we would point one another to the greatness of who you are through the way that we live in relationship. So God, be glorified in our worship, be glorified in our lives and in our relationships because you are worthy of every praise. You are worthy of every thought that brings you high. So God, thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you for his blood and what has been accomplished through his death and resurrection. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. What a great Savior we serve. What a great God who is faithful in all things. What a great provision he has given us in Christ. Well, friends, as we go, hear our benediction this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Have a great rest of your Lord's day.